0: Welcome, everyone, to episode three of the Guns and Yoga Podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. I'm really looking forward to today's episode because not only does my guest have a lot of great insight and knowledge. From his extensive career in law enforcement, but he is someone who has been a mentor to me personally and who I now consider a good friend. Today, I speak with Major Darren Ivey from the Kansas City Missouri Police Department. Darren was a proud member of the United States Air Force from 1983 to 1992 where he served in support of Operation Desert Storm. Darren was appointed to the Kansas City Missouri Police Department in 1992, He served as the department's CIT commander from 2012 to 2018, and through a partnership with Truman Medical Center's Behavioral Health, Ivy led a team that developed a training program called Building Resilience, Surviving Secondary Trauma. This training helps address the occupational risks of secondary trauma and acute stress, and since March of 2015, thousands of law enforcement, mental health, and other first responders from across the country have completed the course. I attended Darren's course in 2016 and was so impressed that I secured a grant from our local DA to fund a six-day train-the-trainer class for first responders in our community. Major Ivy has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Park University where he graduated summa cum laude and a master's certificate in criminal justice education from the University of Virginia. He has an international critical incident stress certification for assisting individuals in crisis and group crisis intervention, and was an inaugural member of the first commander peer support group in the country. He is the past co-chair of the Mid-America CIT Council and Justice Committee on the Resilient KC Initiative and was the Missouri State CIT Self-Care Chair from 2016 to 2018. Major Ivey currently serves on the Board of Directors for CIT International, the Advisory Board for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy, and Pause First Academy. Darren is also a graduate of the FBI National Academy Class 274. During our conversation, we talk about the impact that secondary trauma has on first responders, peer support, childhood adversity, and retirement. Darren addresses the need to implement robust systems to follow up on initial resilience training. He also discusses his own path to resilience and how important it is to prioritize your wellness and do things for yourself, whether that be exercise, yoga, meditation, time in nature, or other hobbies. During the episode, Darren says, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. We never know the impact or ripple effect our story can have on someone else, which is one of the reasons I started this podcast. Shortly after my conversation with Major Ivy, his agency suffered the tragic loss of one of their own to suicide, and we offer our condolences to him, the family, and the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department family. According to Blue Help, we have already had 25 law enforcement officers die by suicide this year, 177 in 2020 and 239 in 2019. Darren is a likable guy and transparent about his own struggles. He is committed to help other cops, first responders, and their families. If you enjoy this episode and can think of someone else who may benefit from hearing it, please share and go to our website and enter your email so that you can be notified of upcoming episodes and subscribe. Welcome to the show. Today we have Major Darren Ivey from the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Darren, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I'm really excited to have Darren on the show today. I'm really actually proud uh, and honored to be able to call him a friend. I think I've known Darren for at least four or five years, but for some reason, it seems like it's been much longer than that. Yeah, it seems like we've known each other uh, maybe 20 years or so.
1: Yeah, so absolutely.
0: So we met, from my memory, uh, we met through the Yoga for First Responders program because you were doing some resilience training for them. And it was when I first hooked up with that program. And so you were doing at the time and still are, you're building resiliency, surviving secondary trauma training that you did in conjunction with the Truman Medical Center.
1: Yep, correct. And then uh, I remember we were, I had met with Olivia, who was with Yoga for First Responder, the founder, and we actually were hosting a course, a train-the-trainer course down here in Kansas City, and you had signed up for it, and you reached out to me a little bit beforehand to talk about the other stuff, and it was a friendship from then on out.
0: Yeah, and actually, I I hold you responsible for my passion for all things wellness for first responders. You kind of you got that spark ignited four or five years ago, so i uh I, I thank you for that.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It's been fun to watch not only where you've taken it, but how many connections have actually offshot uh, both your my relationship uh, with, with Kim Colgrove, who I know mm-hmm. you've had on your on your podcast and and those connections. and it's just like a gigantic tree that seems to keep on growing and growing and growing. so it's been pretty neat.
0: Yeah, good stuff and and we will talk more about your building resiliency training here in just a moment, but just to kind of lay the groundwork, the listeners have already heard um, a very brief description of your background, which is quite extensive. Um, But you have a total, I calculated, and I'm not the greatest at math, but about 37 years total uh, combined with your time in the Air Force and your time with the Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. So what Inspired you or made you decide uh, way back when to to get into this career field, starting with the military.
1: Uh, it was back when I was in elementary school, so it would have been probably around um, my fifth grade year. So it's probably 1975 or so. One of the one of the um, things I the program they had back then in the 70s was an officer friendly program, and that's kind of like really similar to the SROs of nowadays. They would come, they wouldn't teach classes, but they'd come out at recess time and and they'd come in and visit with all the kids. And I remember at that time how cool our officer was and he'd spend a lot of time with me and we would would talk about a lot of things that were going on. Um, And then you factor that in with the fact that my very close uncle on my mom's side was a police officer for his entire life as well as my maternal grandfather. And after being exposed to that officer friendly, Uh, officer and then connecting really close with my family. I just decided that that's something I want to do for the rest of my life. So I started about fifth grade, and I just kind of geared everything towards it, including my military. That's why I joined the military at 18 years old. I wanted to be a police officer still, and I didn't want to have to wait three more years to be able to be one. So I decided to join the Air Force and become a law enforcement specialist in the Air Force. And I kind of filled the until I could go to the police academy, but I liked it so much. I actually stuck around a little bit longer than um, I intended to stand, stick around the first time.
0: Amazing. You know, it's, I always like to find out why people choose this career field because everybody's got their own story, but you and I have that in common. I, I knew from probably the age of 12 or even younger that that pursuing a career in law enforcement was what I wanted to do. Um, I have a, a few different reasons for, for wanting to, to become a police officer, but it, it started from a really young age, and everything I did built upon that from that moment forward. Yeah. Now I didn't didn't go into the military, but um, I am married to a former Marine. So, but I guess I guess once a Marine, always a Marine, right?
1: That's right. <laughs> yeah. So they say, yeah, I, I was in the the easy air, the easy military is what they always say. The, we had the hotel rooms, which isn't true. Um and, and the maids and the butlers they say, but that's not true here in the Air Force.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard all of that. I've heard yeah. that, that the Marines are the toughest of, of the bunch.
1: That's right. That's what that's what they that's what they would tell you.
0: <laughs> that's right. That and that's what I hear at my house. <laughs> <laughs> So um, so you have, you know, starting with the Air Force, you have a really impressive resume, like like we referred to, 37 years total. And, and quite honestly, it would take days to probably go through your resume and talk about all of the wonderful things that you have done. Um, but just kind of in line with the whole purpose of this show, which is to promote wellness in the areas of uh, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual fitness and resilience for first responders. I really want to touch upon... Um, your work with the Truman Medical Center and the Building Resiliency Program. So if you could just tell us a little bit about how that started, where you were assigned at the time, and and just kind of take it from there.
1: Sure. Uh, So back after I got promoted to captain for the police department, which was back in September of 2012, shortly thereafter I became the CIT commander for the police department. And uh, for those listening who are not familiar with that acronym, it's crisis intervention teams, which are specially trained, police officers or or first responders who who, uh, know how to deal with those in a mental or emotional crisis. And I was approached by one of our partners at the Truman Medical Center um, Behavioral Health Unit there and they asked if I'd be interested in overseeing a training for first responders actually for the police officers regarding secondary trauma. And they said the neat thing about it is we would help put the training together, and then we would also teach it to our our fellow um, department members. And I remember at the time I thought that was kind of a cool idea, but I'd never heard of secondary trauma, and wasn't quite sure what it was. And then when they explained to me that it's basically the trauma of being exposed to and affected by the trauma of others, I thought, you know, that's really cool. Um, but in my my brain, what I was really thinking was that. If I ever tried to bring a training like this to police officers, they would laugh us out of the room and call us a bunch of tree huggers. So I just kind of grinned and said, you know, let me think about it. I'll get back with you. And Marsha Morgan, who was the COO at that time and, and who you're familiar with, Wendy, she uh, will always tell people and she tells me to this day that by the look in my eye, she said she thought I would, she would never see me again. And she right. probably wouldn't have uh, regarding that, at least. I mean, we would we would have been connected on other things, but something really started strange happening um, after I kind of said, I'll get back with you. And I started noticing really the turmoil that was going on in my career field, as well as um, all first responder career fields. And I found that out because as a captain for the police department, I would be sent on many uh, high priority calls where, where it's something that the chief may need to know about, or something that might involve a lot of media, or whatever it was. And the calls I was getting sent on quite, often were the attempted suicides or threats of suicides of my own department members or their families or Mm. the attempted suicides or threats of suicide or completed suicides of the uh, surrounding agencies, first responders who just happened to be in our city and then we would get the calls. Um, I started seeing uh, with my eyes open a lot how many domestic violence calls we had affecting uh, our agencies and and our sister agencies and firefighters and all of their families and I started seeing the DUI calls how many were out there and how many we were responding to regarding first responders and so, something dawned on me as I as I started to about this and I remember the conversation with Marcia and and her staff and I said you know what this this is really serious something's going on in our our career fields of first responders that is not happening in many other places because for every attempted suicide, I mean, actual attempted suicide calls that I, that I would get or hear over the radio, um, I mean, they were like one in one compared to with the, with the public. Now, that's changed a lot over, over the years, but it just seemed to me that that was sticking out really high in my brain. So I went back and I said, you know what, there, there's something got it, has to be done. So why don't we talk a little bit more about this training? And that's where it kind of started all up from what, right there. Um, that was no short feat getting this pulled off by the time we were done, but that was the beginning of it.
0: That's that's such a wonderful story on so many levels. Because first of all, for the Truman Medical Center, for their staff to actually come up with this idea and to approach you, um, it, I've always I don't think I've ever asked you this, but how they even came up with that idea to approach you with that I think is is really great that they were thinking about first responders in the first place, because like you said, I had really never heard of quote secondary trauma um, and until your training. I mean, I had heard the word trauma before, but really not a good understanding of the term secondary trauma as it relates to first responders and the type of work that we do. So it's just kind of, it's interesting to me that they came up with that and approached you. I find that pretty fascinating and, and timely, obviously, And how much time, I'm curious, how much time went by between that initial conversation with you and Marsha and then you coming back and saying, okay, let's let's do this?
1: Probably a good six months, I would say, maybe five, six months. And the neat thing about it is they actually were very forward thinking about this and they were given a small grant to do this training and they actually Mm -hmm. approached um, another agency uh, that was not a police agency Uh, it was actually one of the fire agencies and they turned them down as well. Ah. And so they said, Hey, you know, let's, let's talk to to Darren since we have this relationship through CIT already with the police department. And it's such a scary topic when you don't know much about it. And I think everybody just kind of shied away. Now I would tell you five years later, I have trained complete, I mean, entire fire departments where every 100% of their firefighters have gone through it by the time we're done. And, it's not just police that have been reluctant, it's fire, EMS, it's doctors, it's nurses. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks that they're immune to this or they just don't want to even think about it. So they just have shoved it in a closet um, until it lets itself out in a very ugly fashion normally.
0: Yes, and I would agree with you that I have noticed a huge um, culture shift, for lack of a better way of saying this, or just really people people being a little bit more open-minded about this topic from when you and I first met to now. I think, I think we've made some really good progress. I mean, of course, we still have a ways to go, but I think we're on the right track.
1: We're definitely on the right track. It's, it's neat to see the progress we've made.
0: Definitely. And just, you know, real quick, if you could, I know you explained what CIT was, but this seems to be a common theme that I have found in even the agency that I work at and other agencies that people who seem to want to be involved in this type of training or work have been trained CIT officers. And so CIT's been around for a while, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's been around 20 years now. Um, and actually more than that, uh, I'm sorry, 30 years. It's a little bit over 30 years now. And the, the whole purpose, if you think about it, is they, it was developed because police have become the de facto mental health response for the communities. And because of that, when they weren't trained back before these, uh, the, the programs came around, there was a lot of people going to jail just because they were mentally ill and there was no place else to take them. There was a lot of people who unfortunately had lost their lives uh, because the officers didn't know how to handle a situation and they never had been become aware of what someone who is going through a schizophrenic episode might look like or might might act like or how their that appearance may come off so once we got to know that um, and 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 started learning that and we saw the difference it makes we now use that same equation for wanting to help a first responder who is in crisis they're they're no different than a non-first responder who is in crisis. They're going to have the same the same cues. They're going to have the same actions. Oftentimes, they're going to um, oftentimes even have some, some mental illness um, associated with with it as well. Because you know you can be a first responder and still uh, be a, someone diagnosed who has depression. Because you know that's something that can be treated uh, both with uh, with medicine and, and doesn't prohibit you from being a first responder. So because you have all of that, you've already had that skill set. it's to me it's just natural that you're just going to be drawn to want to assist others who are also in crisis and that may that is oftentimes is your coworker or their family or your firefighter friend if you're a police officer.
0: Yeah, and you're you make a really good point. I mean, it's a natural progression because you're already interested in in that type of work and And really, it's kind of amazing when you think about how long it's taken us to realize, hey, we pay so much attention to training so that we can handle the community members that we come in contact with to, to do that for our own people.
1: Yeah, and you know, we even get a little bit bigger than that because in, in CIT world, we, we say CIT is more than just training. So the training is one aspect of it, but it's about building robust systems to where there's support in place. So a police officer can then connect with the hospital like you know, we did with Truman Behavioral to get someone the long-term care they need so now we've done all this training with police officers on, on mental and emotional awareness and secondary trauma and stuff like that. Now the next part is coming into play now where we have to get all the support systems in place to follow up with all this training. And that's where the many programs like, um, the, like Pause First and like Yoga for First Responders and other programs like that are so integral to the overall wellness uh, of our folks.
0: Yeah, and I definitely agree having been familiar with both of those organizations. But let me ask you this, when you talk about resources beyond just that initial training, before we get into the the resiliency training. I know that your agency and you've been a part of the peer support program at your agency, mm-hmm. um, because I consider that to be a, an immense resource for first responders. Can you talk a little bit about peer support and maybe some experience that you've got directly? Because I know you were involved in that program at one point.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. I I was actually first brought into peer support um, with i had heard about it and i was getting trained in it when all of a sudden one of uh, my own officers actually um, took his own life and Mm -hmm. this was actually during oh actually i'm sorry a day or two days before the training was supposed to begin and we were doing training on critical incident stress management debriefs is what the training Mm -hmm. was all about and a sister agency at the kansas city kansas uh, police department as well as the regional peer support team pulled me out of the room and said, you know, we heard this is what's going on. Uh, we'd like to help in any way possible. And they just kind of enveloped me and, and the five people from Kansas City under that, like a, a, an umbrella of love. You know, they wouldn't they, they wouldn't let us go. Um, they were, right. they, they, they let everybody, they dispatched people to the Fraternal Order Police Hall when we had the memorials. They, wherever we needed them were there. And I saw how powerful that was. And I knew we needed that on our side of the state line as well, because we'd always partnered with the, on the regional side that was led um, on, by, on the Kansas side, more was more of the power powerhouse in there. And so we'd really needed to, to do that. So we finally had to get some state laws changed in Missouri first, the confidentiality piece. And once that happened, we and that took several, several years to get that through the legislature with a lot of help from um, our local fraternal of, uh, Order of Police President, he Brad Lemon was a big part of pushing that through, and once we got that, that allowed us to design our own peer support teams, and a lot of those connections you and I talked about earlier. I um, mean, that's that was even more powerful because then uh, I was able to work with a lady named Pam Apoca, who actually has been certified in our my course as well as some other courses, and Pam wanted to do something with the dispatchers, so she. Uh, developed a regional peer support team for dispatchers, and then that was so successful that we decided she, she decided let's keep on doing some other things. So we'd always talked about the need for commanders uh, because you know, me being a commander, I, I recognized over several years of doing this because this was around 2017 or 2018. I was been doing it for three years. How worn down emotionally and mentally you get. Being t- and, the peer support for others and Wendy I know you know this you and I have had this conversation before Mm -hmm. and it just wears you to a frazzle and it's even more so when you're a boss like a commander or a supervisor because in a critical incident situation you're more concerned about your folks getting the help they need all you care about is supporting them and getting them all of their help and you forget to do the same thing for yourself and sooner or later you just run out of complete steam or an energy and that it's not a pretty picture. When you hit rock bottom, when you've given all you can give and you have nothing else to give, but people still need more from you, it is not a very healthy situation for you or them. So, when we talked about that, Pam said let's do a, a commander peer support team. So, I was part of the first um, inaugural team for the commander peer support team, which is the only one in the country, actually. And it has grown. I, I can't even tell you the number. I know they've done four or five cohorts since then. So, we're probably about 100 trained commanders. And I get phone calls from across the country at times where an agency uh, has gone through a very serious situation. And they said, would you mind reaching out to the chief or, or maybe, maybe mind reaching out to some of the, the command staff to see if we can help them or they will call us. So it's been a, been a neat program. I've been a beneficiary of peer support. I hope that I've helped others through peer support. And it's one of those programs that if you can't get one off on your organization, maybe you're, you think you're too small or maybe you just don't have the people interested in, in being the peer support specialist, that's fine. There, there's other ways around it, like forming regional teams, state teams, teams that are geared towards jobs, like we talk about commanders and dispatchers, whatever it takes, get some sort of, of program going. Then.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And, and you bring up lots of good points, so many. Um, and I, I do know Pam. And I am familiar with your command level peer support t- training that you went through. Most likely, if I don't remember how I knew about it, but I'm sure it's because of you. And as a matter of fact, uh, the current agency that I'm with, um, we have one of our colonels who's been through that training. And we, we I think we also share the same trainers through that regional yes. peer support training network, which is absolutely, it, it's wonderful. And I may be biased, but I think we're probably one of the best out there with the way that we work together and support each other,
1: we do. And you know, I can't talk about peer support without uh, bringing up Angie Jones's name because she, she's like the energizer bunny when it comes to peer support, at least in the Kansas-Missouri area. And I don't think we there's been a lot of good work done by a lot of good people, but I always want to to put her name up front there because she is a major reason that we have been successful in our region.
0: I couldn't agree more. Angie's a rock star. As a matter of fact, um, next week, the agency that I'm with, we are hosting a week-long peer support training for our personnel as a result of a federal grant that we got. And, of course, Angie and many others who I, I plan to actually have on this podcast to talk about some of this stuff um, will will be there next week in our area to train our folks. So I'm really excited about that. Um, so That's
1: awesome. I couldn't
0: agree with you more. Couldn't agree with you more. So um, let me ask you now about the building resiliency training. So we mentioned it a little bit in the very beginning about the partnership with Truman Medical Center. So so walk everybody through, um, because resiliency is such a big buzzword, I feel like, these days, and a lot of agencies are promoting resiliency training. Um, we've heard a lot about it, at least I have, on many different levels. Tell us how you guys came up with the training, the content of the training, and maybe give us a little bit of what. The training is all
1: about. Okay, uh, this is part. Of, these are always my favorite stories because uh, <laughs> it's going to go on forever. But I'll keep it short. Uh, when we first started this, we were said, you know, it was supposed to be a little one-hour informational piece on on what secondary trauma was and maybe some again a few tools. That's that was the point of the grant. That was the reason. That's what we originally designed doing it. But I also knew that I didn't want to do this by myself. I didn't even know what secondary trauma was, so I know. I was not gonna be one of two people maybe helping out on this training. So we looked across the department to put together a team of, of people we thought might be exposed to secondary trauma on, on in a career field of uh, the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department at least. And we grabbed some people out of patrol. Those are easy ones, homicide unit, uh, sex crimes unit, uh, domestic violence, we pulled some dispatchers, we pulled some con- uh, corrections folks. A couple of front desk clerks, uh, crime scene, and a victim's advocate, I think, was the team we put together because we thought these are the people who are really exposed on, on a daily basis to secondary trauma. And the first time we got them together was over a three-day period, and we talked about that training that we need to put together, and we started looking at the resources that our, our, our team from Truman gave us to look through and and to talk about secondary trauma. And at the end of this three days, you know, this is the first we'd really learned about secondary trauma. And we were learning it from some really good folks at Truman. We decided that this is a pretty cool topic. And this is much more impactful in our lives than we actually thought it was because we didn't even know it was there. And we there's no way we were gonna do this in one, in a one hour training. So we, we all said, let's go ahead and go ahead and do it for two hours. And so we decided on a two-hour training, and then we went, uh, went on our separate ways and really had to immerse ourselves in the information before we got back together as a team. And that was about a month later, three weeks to a month later, and it was quite the experience when we got back because everybody, even though we're of a department of about 2,000 employees, and you think you would see each other all the time, but you don't. And after that very powerful 3D, days together, where we had that support system talking to each other about secondary trauma and all the stuff we'd gone through and stuff like that. Being away from them for that time kind of felt like you're missing your family. And so when mm-hmm. we all got back together again, it was great having us all back together. It felt like we were connected again. But then we started talking about all the stuff we'd really learned over the three weeks to a month by ourselves, learning, trying to read up on the topic. And we decided there's no way we could do two hours. So we decided on a three hours and then by the time we were done with that three day session, we finally just, we finally came to the, to the uh, conclusion that three hours is great, but we need a piece about happiness. So what, what I mean by that, when you talk about secondary trauma, and as Wendy, you know, going through the course, first couple hours seems like a bummer because you're talking about how this really affects your life in a negative way and, and bad, 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 bad. And then you can finally get to the piece of, the tools, the resiliency building tools. And it's like, ah, okay, so I'm not, this isn't a permanent issue I got going on. There's ways to deal with it healthy and and to be vibrant again. And that was the resilience piece. And that's what we decided we needed to add more of. So what was then became a four hour training. Um, I thought there's no way we were gonna ever pull that off. And then in March, um, March of 2015, we did our first course that we taught. It was myself and um, one other trainer. We did the teaching with our, our subject matter expert from Truman kind of watching us. And a four hour training went about four hours and 40 minutes, you know, no shocker there, because we'd never taught it before. And I right. really thought two things, I said, they're gonna, they're gonna want to get out of here as quick as they can, they're gonna laugh at out of the other room when we start talking about this. And when I we went beyond the four hours, and I knew we had another hour to go, I'm like, Oh, we're really in trouble. But even when we were done with that, about four hours, 45 minutes later, whatever it was, nobody left the room. They all stuck around, and they wanted to talk about it. And I actually had to kick them out of the room about an hour yeah. after that because that whole group of 30-some-odd people wanted to stay and talk just like we did when we first went through the went through the course. And it, that was my big aha moment. Um, I really thought we're on to something, and then I taught a second course, and I really thought the other shoe was going to drop. You know, you have good. I knew bad was coming, and it actually did not. And the exact same thing happened. And I've taught this thing, you know, two, 300 times now. And I will tell you that I've never had a class that has wanted to get out of that classroom. They want to talk more about it. And if they don't talk to each other, you better plan as an instructor not to take a bathroom break because they're going to grab you at, the, at your earliest break and they're going to want to talk to you about it. And you've taught it enough now. You know what I'm talking about.
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's 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 that's how it became. That's how we knew what we had put together was going to work and it was going to be impactful. And I I'll tell you what I collected stories for the first year. We did evaluations, and I collected on a spreadsheet the evaluation scores. But I also collected the notes. I actually wrote the notes on a spreadsheet of the notes people left behind on their evaluation. And to this day, whenever I'm feeling down or low, I will pull that spreadsheet out and I will read the comments because, you know, we've, there's been comments as powerful as I was actually on my last straw and, and had been thinking about taking my own life. And after this course, I know that I'm no longer alone. I know that I am I, not unnormal for feeling this way. And I know that I can go on and I will reach out to somebody. Wow. I tell you what that you just
0: gave me chills, yeah, me too. Um, <laughs>
1: and, and the worst thing about that is you know these are anonymous surveys, so when people make comments like that, you can't even reach out to them to find out who it was. It, it, this was right. a class of fifty, so I had no way to do it. no one I just, just prayed that they were they actually lived up to what they said they wrote in that. um we've had other comments like, you know, you've saved my family, and it's not me that saved their family it's it's them being exposed to this information. And them wanting to do the work has saved their family. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I can tell you that this course or the information I learned in this course probably saved my family. Um, it definitely repaired some damage of, of my family that I had done well before I knew this information.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I would actually kind of push back a little bit on what you just said because you said that you don't know that it was you that particularly made a difference for that person. And I would argue that it probably was you because I've sat through your trainings, I've heard you speak, and you've been very vulnerable. You've shared some things that are very personal. And, you know, sometimes it just takes that connection with that one person that, that somebody in the audience can relate to. And it was something that you said, something um, that you shared, saved that person. So and that's, that was actually going to be my next point anyway, is the, the big piece of this training that I think is so valuable is the storytelling piece about sharing yeah. the trainers, sharing their story. So, and you touched upon that a little bit already, but maybe you could give us another example of, of how that's so impactful.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for the compliment. First of all, um, mm-hmm. I will tell you that that has been the, my whole point, And I think it's just as healing for me as it is for others, is that if me as a commander of a of a pretty major metropolitan police department can stand up there and bear their soul and tell tell him what a butthead he has been to his family or to, to his friends, um, and how could have you know could have it, cost me things in my life, it could have cost me other things, but fortunately it did not. That if it's safe for me to do that, then maybe it's all right for them to talk about those things and. That's kind of where the storytelling comes into. And you know, there's some stories as Wendy knows, as you know, Wendy, because um, you've gone through my course so many different times or, or heard me present it so many different times that there are some days I can get through my stories. There are some days I can't get through my stories mm-hmm. um, and I'd have to take a little break because that's the connection folks have to understand. What, what we are doing to ourselves by the trauma we're exposed to is a very sad thing but it, it's very normal for people who go through these unnormal circumstances and they don't have the tools to cope. I will tell you from my experience, we, we, one of the things we've done in my training is we, we've uh, tried to incorporate the Adverse Childhood Experiences uh, questionnaire, the ACEs questionnaire into it. And what I've seen is an average of people who take my course anywhere are a four or above in ACEs, four, anywhere between a four and a, and a 10. That's pretty right. significant if you if you look at the scores of what four means. It shows you percentage-wise how much more they're prone to be substance abuse. They're prone to getting certain um, ailments and diseases and and things like that. But what that also tells you is that people who come into a helping profession are coming to these professions for a reason. They probably were hurt themselves as a as a young child. Uh, I I've had a, definitely had some trauma in my life growing up. Um, whether it be from divorces, experiencing divorces to my mother dying when I was uh, 13 years old, uh, things like that, that definitely pushed me towards that place of helping that I wanted to, but most of our, or not most, many of our career field is like that. So then you start that base of trauma and then you add the trauma we're exposed to on a daily basis. And it's just amazing that we haven't imploded a lot longer than, um, sooner than, than we actually have as, as a career field. And when you start talking about these stories, you have to do it in a way that's vulnerable and impactful, but not in a way, unfortunately, that will re-traumatize somebody. And that's, the, that's the, really the balance, the balance of it. But I love the storytelling because once you tell your story, everybody else usually feels comfortable to tell their story. And when I hear other people's story, I am just amazed at the resiliency of them and how they're st- still here in this career field, helping others and still thriving in their life. Or maybe if they're not thriving right now, they they have promised themselves they're going to change to start thriving. Um, so that's where the storytellers come into. I will tell one more quick story. One of my favorite ones is when I did a training with the our state corrections department and a big old gruff guy who I actually kind of um, picked off my list of, oh, this is going to be my troublemaker. This is going to be the one, my naysayer.
0: It's usually it's, easy to, to to identify those. Right. It really is. Words. And you know what? Every <laughs>
1: time I say that, I'm 100% wrong because yeah. they're the ones that have taken it to heart. And he pulled me aside in his very first day at the end of the day. Um, and he said, just, you know, I went uh, at the afternoon break. I went home and I, and I called my family and I told them, I'm sorry for being such a uh, I'll use the PC term, "butthead" to you mm-hmm. guys for all these years. And I promise that I will make a change. And I oh, will tell wow. you four years later, he has done such an incredible job. He took everything to heart and I believe he retired recently. Um, and I hope he will live a very healthy rest of his life because I know he made some huge changes in the four years after he participated in the course and became a trainer himself.
0: Wow. Yeah. See that when I hear those stories, I get chills every time. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Well, and you don't have to go too much into detail. You you said a lot, um, but you mentioned the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experience test, and how you incorporate that into your training. and And I was not aware of that until I went through your training, and now that's part of what I also do when I teach a now eight hour resilience class um, at our agency. And one of the things that I found fascinating, and I think I even got this term from you. Was that your everything that you already bring into the job, um, mixed in with the trauma and the things that you experience as as part of the job? You call that cop stew? Was that you that I heard that term from? Yeah,
1: and I and I actually stole that from um, a speaker named Clark Paris, who was a Las Vegas detective, and his wife, who was a nurse. They teach together. Uh, I can't ah. remember the name of their course. And that's where I got it from one of their presentations, but it's a perfect dis- depiction of it.
0: it. Yeah, it really is. Because um, I think it's a really good way to explain to people when you're teaching this stuff that you, whatever your reaction is, because I get this question a lot, whatever your reaction is, is normal. If yeah. you have no reaction, If you have an extreme reaction, an emotional reaction to whether it be a call or or an incident that you're involved in on the job, that that is normal because everybody comes into this job with different experiences and different things that that they are still dealing with. And so I just I really like that analogy, that visual of of the cops do. As a matter of fact, I think I I added to one of my slides a picture of some kind of soup to just to visualize so people can visualize what that looks like.
1: And, and you know to kind of explain that a little bit more because people listening probably like well what is what is that well think of a bit of a big pot on the stove and mm-hmm. put all your early childhood trauma and and your adolescence trauma in that pot because you're bringing that pot to the kitchen and then every day you get exposed to something more and more and more and every time you're exposed to that you're pouring more into that pot you point more into that pot and if you don't find a way to empty that pot or you don't find a way to turn that heat down to simmer. That sooner or later, that pot boils over, and, yes. and that's not quite the way Clark explains it. But that, that gives you an idea uh, of why it's so easy to kind of comprehend what that looks like.
0: Yes, and thank you for that that further explanation. That was great. And you know, there's there's a lot of research studies that I've also you know since diving into all this stuff for the past several years, that both the military and law enforcement are now starting to look at the ACE. And, and look at um, recruits in the academy and look at officers who have been on a certain amount of time and just to measure certain things um, and how that those early childhood experiences impact um, how they are today.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, and we talk about it in our training, it, trauma really forms how you look at things. I mean, it shapes your world. If you, if you grew up being sexually abused, eh, don't you think that's going to skew what a relationship looks like to you or what love or what trust looks like or if you same if you've gone through a uh, your family goes through a divorce what does that do for your trust level when it comes to relationships once again and these are all things that are very impactful to us and especially those of us in a giving profession where we have to really give a lot of ourselves to the people we're helping in the first place and all that stuff kind of comes boiling back up if you have not addressed it or you haven't um, been given the tools on how to at least work through it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can tell you that from knowing what my score was, which I'll share with everybody is a five. I mean, it's right in the middle, but it's a little bit higher than the average. Knowing some of these things has really helped me reflect on, Oh, I, that makes sense as to why I may have reacted this way versus this way. So it's just, uh, and I think first responders in general are the type of people that we like to kind of understand things. And I think just, that's why I think this training is so important. It's because it explains it, um, breaks it down. And you have that education piece to to what trauma is, what secondary trauma is, how this ACE score could be impacting, how you may react on a certain type of a call in the future. And it just kind of ties it all together. So... So again, kudos to you and Truman Medical Center for, for coming up with this and, and keeping it going strong after five years.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, so many programs have, have taken on things like the ACEs and well, one of my favorite programs is Save a Warrior and you know, what, something they say in theirs is so true is I am not my number. So yeah, mm-hmm. you may be a five and I know police officers that are tens, mm-hmm. that they are not their numbers. That means they went through a lot of poop growing up Yeah, but that doesn't mean they're not a good police officer doesn't mean they're not a good husband or wife. That just means they've had to learn a lot of skills to be um, effective and to be productive and to be not not hurting to other people. So if you are someone listening to this right now and and you've done the aces and and you dwell on it, remember, you are not your number. That is nothing that does not who you are. That is just what you've gone through.
0: Yeah, and I've never heard that and I wrote it down. I'm going to probably steal that now. I like that. That's That's a a good
1: thing to say. I'm I'm sure the founder, Jake Clark, would not care.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. All right, so so now shifting a little bit towards the ending of your training, when you talk about the resilience piece, just tell everybody a little bit about what, what that part of the class is like. And then if you don't mind sharing after you tell us that, some of the things that you do yourself. Um, to kind of build or keep up or maintain your
1: resilience? Okay, yeah. Let's. Uh, so the resilience is the key behind it because so much of our training starts off with, this is what trauma is, this is what secondary trauma is, this is how it affects you both mentally and physically because there's a lot of physical effects to your body
0: from sure. trauma.
1: And it's important that you know that, but you also need to realize it's not a death sentence. This is nothing more than, something you've gone through, there's ways to to be strong and, and to be stronger because of it. Um, and that's the, where the resiliency piece comes in. So we talk a lot about meditation. Um, I, I mentioned Save a Warrior. And and one of the things they tell, uh, taught us was something called Warrior Meditation. and It's a, that simple little 20 minute meditation that, that we, we talk about and go through. and. It's something I was still used to this day. I don't do it nearly enough, and I will find myself at times knowing when I'm not meditating because I become more irritable. I become a, <laughs> um, a lot less, a, a lot more judgmental of others and, and myself. Uh, so that's the one of the big things that I like to do. Um, the other pieces of, of we talk about during the training are um, things you can do for yourself. So we, we talked about how we give, 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 and give to, to others. And when we do that, sooner or later, um, the pitcher, our pitcher, starts to become empty. So uh, we talked about the props. Now imagine a pitcher of water. And you're pouring out, you're pouring out, you're pouring out, and that's giving to others. But sooner or later, you got to do something for yourself to Get that picture full back again. So we have a great tool that I love to use, and it's called it's a balance wheel. It's called mapping your resilience. And what it does is, is it makes you think about and put on a piece of paper on the tool on, on the tool that we use, how much energy or effort you're putting towards certain things in your life. So you have to find 10 things, eight things, whatever we make you use things that you consider really important in your life then you have to ask yourself how satisfied you are in those areas. And then the big part is you have to kind of show on this graph, how much energy and how much of your effort you're putting towards these areas. And as Wendy knows, one of the things I make you do is I make you put job on there because your job, um, most of us who are going through the training have a job usually at the time. And that takes a lot of the energy and your effort. And what you do is you kind of go around by the time you're done, you realize how, much you are putting towards your job and how little you're putting towards yourself. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble. That's where the burnout happens. That's where the compassion fatigue kicks in on us. So much bad things happen when we've just completely wore ourselves out or completely emptied our picture, a picture. And that's one of my favorite things. And I said, you know, the only way you can get that picture full back again is to do things for yourself. And that's a tough sell for first responders because Mm -hmm. one of the questions I always ask is how many of you folks in this room feel guilty or angry when someone does something really nice for you or spends a lot of money on you for a present? And it would shock you to see how many first responders or other caregivers, because you know, like our social workers and stuff like that, how guilty or angry they feel, including myself, when someone spends a lot of money on them. Right. Because the first thing in our mind is we're not worthy of this. Why would you spend it on me when we could have gave it to the charity down the street or we could have gave it to this homeless family we know about or we could have done this? Well, guess what? My, my, my guess is your family is like mine. You're doing a lot of that, too. You are giving to others and you're doing a lot of giving to others and other charities. But yet you still do not think you're good enough to have this done for you or to do it for yourself. So we talk about that because once I, once we look at why how we're not doing anything for ourselves and how we're doing very not putting a whole lot of effort towards the things that give us so much pleasure, why is that? Well, we just talked about that part and then now we got to figure out how we're gonna get through that. So we have another exercise called the I will. And the I will is probably my second favorite exercise because we make the participants come up with a couple things they're going to do, in four different realms the spiritual realm the emotional realm um, the social realm and the physical realm and what are they going to do for themselves and they have to come up with these promises like i will let's say we'll, we'll use the spiritual i will meditate um, 20 minutes a day four days a week and then maybe the second one would be on the on the physical stuff. I will exercise 30 minutes a day, five days a week. And they have to go around and do this. And then they write themselves a little note of affirmation at the bottom and they have to uh, give me the, the paper because it, I take it with me and 60 days later, I will take send that paper back to them just as a reminder and say, all right, so it's been 60 days. How have you done on the promises you made to yourselves? And some of the stories I get back from those are, are pretty impactful too. I love hearing how some people have just completely changed their lives by doing simple things like going back on date date nights with their spouses or spending time with their children, a, cer- a certain blocked out period of time each day. Or maybe it is uh, doing something for themselves, like going for a hike um, a couple of days a week. And other stories I get is I didn't do anything and I feel awful for this, but your note is a great reminder for me that it's not too late and I can start all over again. Uh, the, the reason this is my second favorite exercise is oftentimes i I find myself having to remind myself reading them that I haven't done anything for myself for a while too right. and I go back to getting back on that wagon of doing the meditation or I really uh, you guys asked what else I do for myself I'm a really huge fan of mindfulness um, and there's so many different things you can do to be mindful when you're doing stuff uh, when you when you're having a conversation with your child, and and the stories I tell in my training, I, I just I they make me feel happy even talking about them, where I can be one-on-one contact with my son, where there's no TV on, there's no cell phones, it's just me and him on the floor wrestling, or or talking about his day at school, or what. Uh, my day was like at work because now he's 11 and almost 12 and he wants to know how my day is and we do this every single night to this day he's 11 and a half years old almost 12 and i will lay in his bed with him and we will discuss the days and how we felt and how we do and i mean it's usually while we're holding hands or his his uh heads on my chest that is a mindful activity that uh, anyone can replicate that that's easy that's connection that's living in the present right that's not thinking about crap, I mean, let me live in the past and think about all the crappy things I did to my son, or let me worry about the future and, and worry about what kind of world he's going to live in. You know that, That's what we do too much. We live in that past, we live in that future, and we don't ever remember to live in the present, which is where the mindfulness piece comes into. And so that's one of my favorite uh, mindfulness activities right there is that nightly activity with my son. And I can, I, mean, I can go on and on, but those are the things I always go back to myself as well when i start slipping because just like your A score doesn't is not who you are the mistakes you've made in this life doesn't don't define you what what defines you are how you react to them and how how you elect to go on from them and to be stronger because of them and that's always my reminder um, when i need it is is to get back to that mindful activity or some sort of mindful activity because that keeps me Lock down in the present. It keeps me grounded to what's really important and not the stuff, the guilt and the shame that seem to uh, thrive in our in our career, in our career.
0: yeah, and and thank you so much for sharing all of that. And the thing about mindfulness, I agree with you, is uh, that a lot of people don't think of because sometimes when when we do this, I will exercise or exercises along those lines. People can get a little overwhelmed, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I have to do all of these things at once. And what I like to say to people is start small, small incremental change. This doesn't have to take very long. Like you just gave a great example. Being mindful doesn't have to take very long. um, But the time that you are spending, um, you're being completely present. And I can completely relate to that what you said about kids and even conversations with, you know, other family members or even just friends, you know, how many times I think we can all relate to somebody's talking to us, but we're not really listening. We're kind of spaced out thinking about something else. And just that self-awareness of, Hey, I need to pay attention. Uh, And if you're not ready to listen at that time, and I'll do that. I don't know about you, Darren, but I'll come home from work because typically everybody is, is already home before me and, I'll say, hey, just give me just about five minutes, let me go change, and then I can come in and, and talk and really be there for my family. And yeah. and a lot of times it just doesn't happen, but um, I have learned over the years to to really pay attention to that because I, I catch myself slipping all the time. So it's yeah, it's a,
1: hard. Uh, I'll tell you it's what. It's a process. <laughs> it, it is definitely a process, and I am not, um, I will tell you, I'm, I'm one of the worst people about still taking care of myself, self-care, even though I talk mm-hmm. about it. But I'm also honest about that. When I teach, say, you know, I'm not right. this perfect person up there saying that I meditate every single day and I do this and this, but the difference is I'm, a, I'm aware of it now. And that's a big part of our training also is the freedom and the ability to talk about our feelings. It is a safe place and it's okay to talk about how you feel. And for the, uh, I bring this up because it was a pretty crappy 2020 for everybody. And I think everybody knows that. And I had a pretty rough um, December uh, as a patrol commander. I had a, we had a lot of things going on in my part of the city. And one day, just going from call to call, my folks were, and you know, I was listening to the radio and I was doing a couple of the calls with them. And the calls that I heard on the radio from six o'clock in the morning when I got on the radio to eight o'clock that night when I got off the radio, had overwhelmed me so much hearing the evil that was going on in our society, hearing hearing and seeing the evil stuff that was being done. For the first time in 37 years, when I got home and my wife saw that in me, she said, can can I give you a hug? And I actually said, no, Oh man. yeah, please, but do me a favor. Give me five minutes. All I Mm -hmm. need is five minutes to get this stinky uniform off me and to decompress without a radio in my ear and without anything else. And then I'll be ready for a hug. Actually it took me about 15 minutes to be ready for that hug. Mm-hmm. But you know, how many cops would ever feel know to feel that I'm not ready for that hug. In fact, you know, if, if, if someone tried to give you a hug, instead you would probably become pretty combative with your spouse or your children and you would tear into them because that's what you've seen, you know, for so much of your, day or career, remember what it was, but I was aware of that emotion. I knew how to deal with that emotion and I'd prepared my family. My wife has been by my side this entire time, helping them teach spouses, the same type of information right? or just supporting me. She knew if I said no, that that's an attack on her. That was me expressing how I felt that moment. And I really needed that, that time. And you bring up
0: such a great point about, and I didn't mean to cut you off because I'm sure you were about to say this, but uh, excuse me, the, the, the importance of bringing in our family to this kind of training. Um, But also what I'm thinking is that what you and I've talked about numerous times before is I wish that there was this kind of a training or education when I went through my police academy 25 years or so Mm -hmm. ago. Um, Because think about that example that you just gave, how many times, how many of us can relate to that, but not having that self-awareness to know um, that maybe we just might yell or pop off at our spouse and that could lead to an argument instead of having that information and that, that mindfulness to know, okay, this isn't a good time for me and to say that and to communicate that in a way that your spouse gets it. So, and again, just another example of why this kind of training is so important and why you talking about it and others is so
1: important. Yeah, we have to deal with this. So we we talk about it all the time. You you can only shove these emotions and these feelings in the closet for so long. And sooner or later, that closet door is going to come flying open. And what we know from experience, at least I can tell you from my experience and everybody I talk to, it always comes open at the least opportune time, right? Right. It right <laughs> comes open, flies open when you're supposed to be dealing with a very delicate situation, or maybe you're at a, hor- a horrific scene that you have to be present because not only do the citizens need you at that scene to doing your job, but your officers also need you there. But you can't do a thing because that closet just burst open, and you're now dealing with 37 years of pent up and crammed in emotions and um, dealt with situation. So that's why it's so important for us to deal with it now. And and it is so important to bring our families on board. There's a way to do that. I will tell you, you have to have open conversations with your families, but not to share everything with them. Because remember what secondary trauma is, it's being exposed to and affected by the trauma of others. That's kind of the cliff note version definition I use. And if you tell your wife or your husband or your adult children too much, you can traumatize them. Right And that's the last thing you want to do. So it's a happy median. if you can't find it, I, I always suggest you reach out and get a little uh, help through a counselor who can help maybe help you guys find that happy median on how to talk to each other in a productive and healthy way.
0: Yeah, and I think every couple is going to be unique in how they handle that. You know, for instance, I'm married to a first responder and we shared probably a lot more details and, uh, than maybe some others would. Um, And I'm not saying that was right or wrong, but that's just how we handled it. Um, But other couples may not want to handle it that way. But but that spouse who isn't the first responder, knowing what their spouse needs and the timing of it is huge, because I think we've spent so much time not talking about these things with each other that just at least opening up the door for that conversation is a step in the right direction.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's the most the most important step. And there is no wrong. Like you said, there's no wrong uh sure how you do it is the right way to do it and because you'll find out pretty quickly if that way is wrong because you guys mm-hmm. won't be communicating so if you're communicating right. it, it's it's the right way my wife <laughs> wanted to know as much information as she could um i can't do that and not, not only do i know what, what even if she thinks she can handle it and she probably could it also makes me relive those things over and over again mm-hmm. telling the story yes. so i as, as you know wendy i'm not a great storyteller unless it's part of training uh, I make myself tell those stories. But if someone asked me to tell them about a call, I am a 10 second storyteller when it comes to things I see on this job, while other people are these great storytellers and they'll talk about everything. That's just not me. I don't want to relive that over and over. I'd like to forget about it and get deal with it and keep on going.
0: Yeah, I, I can relate to that myself. There's been many times that I've come home in the past and just said I had a bad day and didn't feel like going into detail, but but maybe some time after some time passes, I would share. But but it it just depends. You know, you have to do what you feel comfortable doing.
1: And if, yeah, if you don't have a someone you can talk to, then by all means, get somebody to talk to. Uh, get hold of a peer support regional peer support person or a state one or contact one of the national lines. Uh, you can do that. Uh, Go see a a counselor through your EAP program. The importance of talking, I cannot even come close to to, uh, underestimating for you. You you have to be able to talk, and and you need to, to be able to talk about what you're experiencing and how you're feeling. Because once you get it out, there's things you can do to get through it and to be stronger because of it. And sometimes this can be so serious, it will require professional help. Other times it'll be so um, not, it's so not as serious that just talking to a friend or somebody you don't know will will help you process that information. But find somebody.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. If you don't have a family member to talk to, there's like a bandwidth of resources available. Especially, I think there's more and more uh, that you know every day that we're finding out about whether it be these anonymous 24-hour hotlines peer support, chaplaincy programs, therapy. And I know you talk a lot about those resources in your training. And I think you obviously you you gear that more towards local resources. Um, but but really, there's a lot of great national resources out there, too.
1: Absolutely. And I will tell you, since we're talking about that, if you're a military veteran or a first responder, two that I will always share with people, and I'll share them on this podcast, are Save a Warrior and My Battle Within. Both are four and a half day, five day programs where you're you're in residence, you're at that location where they're doing it and the only thing you have to do is get there and everything else is covered. And even they even have resources at times that can help you get there and it's and it's free and it's the most empowering 5 days you will go through because you're with a group of of fellow first responders and military veterans and you are processing together and you're learning together and you're got a support system right then and there. So those are two great programs that I want to share uh, while while we're talking about those type of things.
0: Yeah, and I'll put some information um, in the notes for this podcast about those two programs. Um, I'm obviously familiar with The Battle Within, but not so much with Save a Warrior. So thank you for, for bringing that up. So let me ask you this, Darren, just shifting a little bit, a couple things you talked about, but but really leading to the, the question of retirement and, and really the, the end goal, right? We want to make it to retirement right. and, and have a very healthy, thriving life afterwards. You did talk about the command level peer support, and I forgot to ask you about this earlier, but you made the point where commanders, um, especially if you're involved in peer support, um, how that can weigh on you. And so as commanders, typically when you're a commander, you've got a little time under you where you've got at least you know, 15, 20 years already on the job of, of your own experiences and, and, and trauma. And then on top of that, you have a whole new layer of responsibility and problems in caring for all the people that are under you. So I think a lot of people don't, at least some things that I have heard, a lot of times people think, oh, well, they're supervisors or commanders. What kind of stress do they have? Um, well, I, you know, I, I would definitely argue that I think that commanders such as you and others that I know have a whole lot of added stress because of all of those things that we talked about. So, so that's why I think it's really important, um, at least we're doing this in our, in our agency, um, and this has really come at the suggestion of, of people like Angie and you, is not to forget about those commanders when it comes to peer support. Peer support's not just for the, the deputies and the officers and the line level front lines, but it's for every layer of the organization. And that, that really, that includes civilians as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially our communications folks. Um, they're often forgotten in many of the, the things that were done. Uh, and I will tell you that Kansas and Missouri has done a very good job of incorporating them and making sure they're incorporated because... If you ever want a stressful and trauma-filled day, just go sit up with your dispatchers or your 911 operators and slap on a headset for eight hours with them and and listen to the things that they're having to listen to and, and work through. Yes,
0: absolutely. And so, okay, so kind of going back to the retirement question. So you, you know, I think that we've talked about this, that you may be planning to retire in the near future. and how do you feel about that um and maybe what are some of the things on the horizon for you
1: you know it's yeah def, i'm definitely this is probably my last year um I to, my plans were to do it go early in 2021 i think i'm gonna probably try to wait till the end of 2021 but that'll be my full 28 and a half actually 28 and a half years by then on kansas city missouri police department and they say you know it's time to go when it's time to go and i and i know it's getting ready that, that time to get ready to kick. I, I can feel it. Sure. It, takes, it takes a lot more to recover from from some of these calls. Um, it takes a lot more time to one and more effort to go back to work after a, maybe a long vacation. Sure. So I know it's time to pass it on to somebody else. But I also know working with people like you and, and with Kim Colgrove that it's so important to have plans when you retire. I don't know about you, Wendy, but my goal is to go through all of my retirement that the city has set aside for me. (laughs) I don't plan on turning it back in and they're not getting my money. I want to take all their money. So my goal is to live another 30 years after I retire 40 years and live off their money for a while. And to do that, I have to you have to do things that make you happy. Uh, I want to teach, continue to teach. One of the biggest joys I get is to talk about self-care for First responders or anybody in the caregiving world, I I love doing seminars. I love doing webinars. I love going to locations. So that's going to be a big part of what I do. I was wanted to be a police chief for a while, um, and then after 2020 hit, I said, "There's no way in heck I want to be a police chief." (laughs) I don't blame you for that. (laughs) Yeah, I've kind I've kind of gotten that bug again. Um, I I have a new assignment on my job, and I've really enjoyed it. I've been enjoying it so much that. I'm being select on, on some chiefs of police jobs that I'm putting in for, uh, but if the right fit is there, I wouldn't mind being a chief for five, six years before I call it permanent quits. But I right. will not be the person who sits around and does nothing. I, I don't think that's healthy for us. Um, you can't go from 28, 38 years, uh, like for me, at a full accelerator and then slam on the brakes and do nothing and expect to be healthy afterwards. You You need to find something that really makes you happy. So that's my big search in life will be this year, what that's going to be. I, I it, will re, it probably will revolve around teaching and a few other things. Um, giving, as long as I can give back and continue to serve folks, uh, that will make me survive until I'm a 100 years old, I really hope.
0: Yeah, and that's great. Well, congratulations on all of that, and I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors to become a police chief, but Selfishly, I, I would rather you not have to move out of the area and you get to stay with us here in the Midwest. But I just I just had to say that.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Oh, we'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, and and but you bring up so many good points. You know, in this profession, it is a tough job, but it is the most rewarding. And I would never trade it in for anything. I love my career as a first responder, but we're also afforded an opportunity to be able to retire much earlier than most with a pension. Mm-hmm. And, and not to say that, that that's something um, that's going to make us sustain us for the rest of our lives, and we don't need to work. But, but it's kind of nice that we have this opportunity to do something different, to, to retire, and whether we want to continue on in law enforcement or if we want to teach or pursue a hobby unrelated to to the career field, I think it's I think it's really great. And a lot of times, I think people don't realize how kind of what a gift that is.
1: Right, I, and it's a gift. You're right. M- many officers don't realize what a gift it is or, or department employees mm-hmm. uh, um, at the same time. It's funny because a lot of, of people who aren't involved in this career field think that we're scamming somehow being able to retire at 57.
0: <laughs> and yes, I have to remind them, well,
1: yeah, just remember one thing while you were making six figures, I was doing the exact same job making half of that money. Right. And that's the trade off or, you know, the trade off is you're going to be drawing Social Security that you've been putting into the system. I don't get to draw that Social Security under the current laws because of, of the way the laws are written. If I'm drawing mm-hmm. a, a pension, I don't get that Social Security, even though I put a lot into the Social Security system. So there's a trade-off to both of it, but we need to, part of my outlook on life is to always look at the positive and And we'll go back to what I, what I do for myself. That's another warning sign to me when I become very pessimistic and complaining about everything, that I know I'm not taking care of myself <laughs> and I have to look at the positives. And I I say that to to tell our listeners that remember Wendy said that we are very fortunate to get to do something else in our life. When we leave this job that we want to, Uh, we have time for a whole second career or at least half of a second career. if We really want to. So look at that as a positive and, and find out what that passion is that's missing in your life. And maybe you can do that after you retire.
0: Thank you. Wow. So much good information. You are, um, you are just such a treasure. Um, I am so happy to call you my friend. And I mean, I just really appreciate everything that you do, um, everything that you do for the people at your agency and really anybody that has ever come across your path. You've trained so many people and you've done so much for, for resilience and trauma awareness. And I just really appreciate everything that you're doing. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Uh, I, I, Proud to call you, friend, and I love to see that you've far exceeded anything I've done now. You've you've taken it into a whole new different directions. And even neater now is if we look across the world and we look at how many programs that are out there doing this type of stuff, it just amazes me on a daily basis how many police officers and other first responders are now giving back to their career field by talking about sharing their experiences And I'm not talking war stories like we used to do. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about how this job destroyed my marriage or this job destroyed my family. I let it, and here's how you do not do that. And you give them the tools. So that's neat. I love seeing it across all boundaries and I really love seeing what you've done with it as well.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. So one last thing. Um, so if you were to give one piece of advice, To somebody who's just now embarking in this career field, maybe it's a new recruit or somebody that's considering a job in law enforcement. What would you say to them?
1: Get out! No, I'm joking. I knew you were going to say that. That's what everybody everybody says. I'm I'm actually the opposite. I'm, I'm so happy that they're coming into this career field. I would I would tell them that to always remember to take care of themselves. It's not selfish to take care of yourself. You cannot take care of somebody else if you don't take care of yourself. And I wish somebody would have told me that when I started this job because Mm -hmm. I thought it was about giving, giving, giving. That's what we're wired to do. When we sign up for this job, something in our life wired us to be a servant. And as a servant, we feel that we can't be a recipient. We have to give, give. And that will be your downfall. That will be the thing that will get you in trouble at your agency and maybe legally, that will be the thing that will get you in trouble with your family. Um, Unfortunately, that will cost some of the people we know um, from this job their life. And it's all about not taking care of themselves. So remember, you're worth it. You're worthy of it. Take care of yourself and let others take care of you. And you in turn will be more strong, and more powerful to serve others that you signed up to serve in the first place.
0: Wow. Great words of wisdom. Thank you so much. And thank you again for all of your years of service and everything that you do.
1: Thank you, Wendy, for having me. And thanks for doing this great podcast.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to contact Darren, he can be reached at darren.ivy at gmail.com. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes for programs mentioned during the show.